And now, if you will, please stand for the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Revelation chapter 2, 18 through 29. It's our sermon text as we finish up the second chapter of Revelation. But before we hear God's word read, let us uh, ask the Lord's blessing upon it. Father, we pray now that you will give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, O Christ, we pray that you who have eyes like a flame of fire, who searches mind and heart, would illumine our minds and, and soften our hearts as you speak to us now. Cause us not to be hearers only, but doers of your word. And we pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Revelation chapter 2 and beginning in verse 18, this is God's holy word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan... To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star and he who has an ear Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Doctrine divides, but love unites. I'm sure that you've all heard that slogan before. It actually became a mantra at a non-denominational church I once served at as a youth minister prior to uh, coming to the Reformed faith. And the church began to practice certain things that I didn't find to be biblical. And when I wanted the elders and the ministers to study those matters from Scripture, they responded to me by saying, the Bible teaches us about Jesus. But it doesn't teach us how we need to live today. For that we all need new and fresh revelation from God. 
And so I said, okay, well, let's study that in Scripture. And after that, they told me that I was being pharisaical, intolerant, and divisive. And I'll never forget, uh, they told me that uh, my desire for doctrine was divisive, but they simply uh, wanted to show the love of Christ at, at this church. They wanted to show the love of Christ to people. Well, needless to say, I didn't remain at that church much longer. Um, and it wasn't shocking to me when I found out a few years later that the church had ceased to exist. And I say that not because of my departure from the church, but because of the path that they had chosen to take. Doctrine divides, but love unites. Well, maybe there is some truth to that. But the question we have to ask is, does love without doctrine promote true Christian unity? Doctrine does divide. We saw that in our Wednesday night adult class this last week. The OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, would not exist if doctrine didn't have a divisive quality to it. But division is not always a bad thing. Where division separates what is true from that which is false, it is a good thing. And from this perspective, we actually find that doctrine has a uniting effect to it. It unites together those who hold fast to the truth. We must be militant for the truth, though it needs to be a loving militancy. Paul had a concern for the saints at Ephesus to attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood so that the church would not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians four thirteen through 16. So do you see how doctrine and love are always to be working together? A few weeks ago, we spoke similarly about these things when looking at the message, Christ's message to the church at Ephesus. They had been commended for their doctrinal precision, but they lacked love for one another. They needed to repent of this and to remember the love that they had for one another at the first, at the beginning. Well, the church in Thyatira had the opposite problem. They are commended for their love, faith, service, and patient endurance For their latter works exceeded those at the first. When they first began the church there at Thyatira. But, here's the problem. They tolerated that woman Jezebel who was teaching and seducing Christ's servants at Thyatira to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed 
to idols. Now, once again, we see symbolism from the Old Testament in this passage. There was not actually a woman at Thyatira with the name of Jezebel. Christ is referring to King Ahab's wife Jezebel in the Old Testament, who seduced the Israelites into sexual immorality and idolatry, and specifically to Baal worship at that time. And so Jezebel is being used symbolically to refer to the situation that is occurring at Thyatira. There may, be, may, have, there may have been an actual woman there calling herself a prophetess, and by her false teaching was attempting to lead the church members away. But it's more likely that it was not an individual person, but a particular group claiming to be prophets. In verse 23, the Lord threatens to strike her children dead. Now that would not, of course, be a singular woman's literal children, but it's referencing those who follow her teachings and commit adultery along with her. And so Jezebel is likely referring to a specific sect who claims to be prophets. And those who follow that sect are her children. And we'll come back to that notion in just a little bit. But let's talk about what she was teaching. What this sect was teaching. It's hard to know the specifics, really, of the false doctrine that she taught, but Christ refers to it in verse 24 as the deep things of Satan. Now, this could very well be a reference to certain forms of Gnosticism that existed in the first and second century. Now, a certain brand of Gnosticism blended itself with Christianity, and they claimed to follow Christ. However, they claim that you needed a deeper knowledge than what the apostles taught or even than what Christ himself taught. The Gnostics were an elitist group who believed that they had this deeper secret knowledge. That's where the word Gnosticism comes from, from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. Now, interestingly, some form... Some forms of Gnosticism claim to have received their knowledge from a divine serpent. And so you can see why Jesus may be referring to it here as uh, them teaching the deep truths of Satan. Now, Gnosticism, one of their primary teachings is that they believed all matter all material things, all matter, was evil, was inherently evil. So even our material bodies are evil. Only that which is spiritual was good. And so our bodies are evil, they would say, but our spirits are good. And therefore they would teach that anything done in the body, even the grossest of sins, has no meaning to it. Because real life exists only in the spirit realm. Now, this might explain why Christ accused them of seducing his servants at Thyatira into practicing sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. You see, if this sect referred to as Jezebel were Gnostic, 
They would have been teaching the Thyatirans that it it didn't matter if you participated in the guild festivals that are being celebrated to the pagan gods and and, and eating this food sacrificed to those pagan gods. If you ate of the food, that's okay. Eating is something done in the body. If you participated in the sexual immorality that came along with some of these festivals and celebrations, hey, no worries. That's all meaningless because everything done in the body is evil anyway. All that matters is your spiritual existence. And in this way, their teachings and practices were really probably fairly similar to the Nicolaitans in the last passage that we talked about. Now, whether this sect called themselves Gnostic or not doesn't really matter. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Maybe they were simply influenced by Gnostic thought. Doesn't ultimately matter which sect they belonged to or identified themselves with. What matters is that they were teaching false doctrine in the church and seducing others by those teachings into immoral practices. And even worse, into idolatry itself. In scripture, sometimes idolatry is uh, being spoken of as, as sexual immorality. It's called sexual immorality because just as sexual immorality is unfaithfulness to one's spouse, so idolatry is unfaithfulness to God and specifically to Christ, our bridegroom. Therefore, Christ says that he gave Jezebel time to repent, but she refused. And so he says he will throw her onto a sickbed and will put those who commit adultery with her, that is her followers who commit idolatry with her, into great tribulation. Now Jesus explains that very thing in further detail down in verse 23 when he says, He will strike her children dead. And that word there, strike, I will strike her children dead, is often referred to in the context of of plagues. And he will strike a plague upon them that will cause death, perhaps a disease or something like this. And that's probably what Jesus means when he says he will throw Jezebel onto a sickbed and put those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, some type of plague with which he will strike all of them sick and then dead. And so Christ is saying that he is going to bring judgment on this sect. And he will bring it against all who follow this sect, unless they repent of the works being done in Jezebel's name. Now the judgment that Christ brings will show not only the church at Thyatira, but all the churches, that he is the one who searches mind and heart. Our Lord searches mind and heart. That can be a very terrifying thing. (laughs) But thankfully, for those in Christ, we have been given new hearts. I have to say that, that our use of the first catechism uh, in, in our church has, has been helpful to my own family. Uh, when I was uh, teaching at our uh, breakfast table this morning, uh, this passage to, uh, to Voss, to my, my, to my three-year-old, um, I was telling him uh, 
that, hey, buddy, we have to believe the truth. This passage is telling us we have to believe the truth. Where do we find the truth? And so my wife asked him, you know, where do you learn how to love and obey God? And he said, in the Bible alone. And then I said, you know why you got to believe the truth? And he said, why? And I said, well, because Jesus reads the mind and the heart. And so my wife asked him, um, you, know, you know that, you know this. Does God know all things? And he said, yes, nothing can be hidden from God. See, these are helpful truths, and we see them taught right here in Scripture. Jesus reads the mind and heart. Nothing is hidden from him. And that is why Christ, at the beginning of the message to Thyatira, says he is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. Jesus can see into the very soul of a person. He can discern the very thoughts and intentions of man. And because of that, he is able to give to each according to their works. Now, by this, Jesus is not saying that Christianity is a works-based religion. In other words, he's not saying you will be justified by your works. We know that we are justified by grace alone through the instrumentality of faith alone. To understand what Jesus is saying here, uh, it's helpful for us to look at how it echoes what is said in Jeremiah 17.10. And in that passage, the context of that passage is that some of the Israelite community were practicing idolatry in pursuit of what? Economic gain. Similar to the way the followers of Jezebel were participating in the evil practices of the trade guild for economic purposes. And so the Lord says in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. Now I want you to take note of several things here. First, notice that Christ, Jesus, in this passage in Revelation chapter 2, is able to do what the Lord does in Jeremiah 17.10. Why? Because Christ is the Lord. He is Yahweh. Second, he says he gives according to the fruit of one's deeds. Now, this is not speaking to someone's justification before the Lord. The Lord does not justify based on the fruits, but upon the heart and the mind. The fruits are the demonstration of what is presented in the person. If someone trusts in the Lord, then they will bear fruits, which demonstrates that they are justified before God. God's judgment for the believer is not based on the fruits, but upon the heart and the mind, that is, on their faith. Nevertheless, the fruits will accompany their faith. And that's why Christ says to those who do not hold to Jezebel's teaching, he says to them that he lays no further burden on them, verse 24. They were only to hold fast what they had until he returned. That is, they were to hold fast to their faith and in that way remain loyal to him. 
They are not to do the works of Jezebel, but the works of Christ unto the end. In other words, they are to persevere to the end. And if they do this, then they will have overcome. They will have conquered. And to the conquerors, Jesus says, he will give authority over the nations in order to rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces. Now, this is almost a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2. But what's different about it, for the most part, is that Psalm 2 promises that the Messiah will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. But here in Revelation, Jesus is saying that this authority will be given to his servants, the ones who overcome. And that's why he finishes that phrase saying, even as I myself have received authority from my father. So Christ has already been given this authority. The fulfillment of Psalm 2 has already begun in Christ He has been given this authority when he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. You will remember at the resurrection, just prior to his ascending up into heaven, he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has already received this authority and has begun to bring Psalm 2 to its fulfillment, though it won't ultimately be fulfilled until he returns in final judgment. The one who overcomes, the one who conquers, will come to share in that authority. The one who perseveres will have a share in the authority of the messianic kingdom and will take part in judging the nations at Christ's return. Members of the Thyatiran church, you see, They might end up standing trial for their faith before the court of Rome and be judged by the courts of men. But if they persevere to the end, then that situation will entail a great reversal. For the saints at Thyatira will rule with Christ as judges over those wicked earthly rulers when they stand trial before the court of heaven. And so that's what Jesus promises to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, to the one who perseveres. Now, even greater than this blessing of reigning over the nations with Christ is the final blessing that he pronounces in this passage. Christ says that to the one who overcomes or who who conquers, he will give the morning star. Now, in one respect, he's he's only promising here the very same thing that he just promised beforehand. Because in the ancient world, the planet Venus was called the morning star because it was the brightest light in the morning sky. And to the pagans, Venus was a symbol of sovereignty. And in the pagan Roman Empire... Uh, This was the case because emperors claimed to have descended from the goddess Venus. 
And so symbolically, Christ is saying something similar to what he had just previously mentioned. He's saying, you will be given sovereign rule over the nations. But more specifically, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus calls himself the bright morning star, the descendant of David. And so Christ is promising to give an even greater treasure than authority over the nations. He is promising to give himself to the one who overcomes. What greater blessing to possess not just the benefits of Christ, but to possess Christ as your master, as your Lord, as your Savior and friend. Beloved, this message applies not only to the church in Thyatira in the Apostle John's day, but it applies to us today as well. To everyone, that is, who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, to understand its meaning, not only to Thyatira, but to the church all throughout this age, it's helpful to see the larger picture of the book of Revelation. Do you remember the theme of the counterfeit trinity that we introduced at the beginning of our series in Revelation? The dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil. And then there is the beast from Revelation 13 who is in the, he, he is an image of the dragon in a way that counterfeits Christ as the image of the Father. But then there's also a second beast in Revelation 13 which is called the false prophet. And the false prophet counterfeits the Holy Spirit who leads people to all truth. The Holy Spirit leads people to all truth, but the false prophet counterfeits this and tries to deceive. And so there, in the book of Revelation, is the counterfeit trinity. But there is at least one more counterfeit in the book of Revelation, and that is a counterfeit of the city of God. In Revelation, the new Jerusalem is the city of God. This is the people of God, the new Jerusalem. But the unholy city who bears the mark of the beast is Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes. And of Babylon the Great, Revelation 18.3 says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich, from the power of her luxurious living. Now, here in the message to Thyatira, Jezebel is associated with Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes. Jezebel is a local example in Thyatira of Babylon the Great. And she is trying to seduce those in the church at Thyatira, to take part in her abominations and in her idolatrous worship of the beast. It's important to know that Babylon, the great prostitute, not only attempts to seduce and tempt the church, but she works alongside the false prophet and her master, the beast, 
right? She teaches what she has learned from the false prophet. In Revelation 17 says she sits on the scarlet beast and is drunk on the blood of the saints. The blood of the martyrs, which of course was shed by the persecuting beast. And beloved, this is largely what the book of Revelation is all about. With the main point being that Christ has gained victory and will bring judgment upon Satan the beast, the false prophet, and Babylon the great. Christ has himself overcome in his own trial and ultimate tribulation on the cross. And that's why he identifies himself in this passage as having feet like burnished bronze. You see, Christ has already walked through the fires of affliction. Just as bronze would be refined by fire in a furnace, so the burnished bronze feet of Jesus symbolizes that he has been tested by the fires of affliction and as a result has overcome. For that is how our redemption was accomplished. Now as we see the application of this to us today, I think it's helpful for us to see the symbolism here that is connected to the Old Testament story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. Those three men did not give in to the temptation to fall down and worship the golden image created by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And therefore, he sought to persecute them and to martyr them for their faith, for their loyalty, for their devotion, their faithfulness to the Lord. They would not commit idolatry. And so he had them thrown into the fiery furnace. But when the king looked into the furnace, not only did he not find three, only three men being consumed by the fire, he actually saw a fourth man and none of them were being consumed by the fire. He saw a fourth man walking in the midst of the fire with them who had the appearance of one like a son of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is, of course, that Son of God. That was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ with them. And that is why this passage begins by saying, the words of who? The Son of God. The other messages did not identify him, not yet, as the Son of God. It does here because it's making reference to that Old Testament account in Daniel chapter 3. And the point here in Revelation 2, is that just as the Son of God was with those three faithful men who walked in the midst of the fiery furnace, so too will He be with those in Thyatira and those who are faithful even here in Amarillo or wherever you are as you walk through the fires of affliction and tribulation. And so here are just a few brief things that we need to take from this passage. For one thing, we need to take comfort, beloved, as we encounter temptations, seductions, deceptions, and perhaps even persecution, knowing that Christ 
has already underwent them himself and is now present with us as we undergo them. And so we must be encouraged to remain faithful to Christ at all times. But another thing is that we need to ask the question of whether or not we are becoming comfortable with Babylon all around us. Are we cozying up with her? Are you starting to make your bed with her? In Revelation 18.4, a voice from heaven cries out saying, Come out of her, referring to Babylon. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. The plagues that are going to come against her. Now, as John Calvin faithfully states, or truthfully states, our hearts are like idle factories. And so we need always to be asking ourselves, what idols has the Babylonian city of this world seduced us with that we need to put to death by the Spirit? And finally... In addition to this, we also need to ask, what teachings of the world around us are we being tolerant of? The fallen world, the city of man, Babylon the great, the mother of all prostitutes has been deceived by the false prophet. So why would we listen to her? Let us not be tossed to and fro by all of her doctrines, but let us speak the truth. In love to one another so that we, the church, the body, might grow up in every way into Christ, who is the head. To him be glory and power and dominion both now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for the the messages to these churches. For, Lord, we know that you aren't speaking only to those seven specific churches, but to your church universal. And these are the encouragements, and these are the commands, and these are the rebukes that we need to hear. And so, O God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you who sees mind and hearts that you would change us from one degree of glory to another as we hear these messages and as we continue always in our study of your most holy word and we pray these things in Jesus name amen